0: Before we begin this week's conversation, I want to let you know about a new podcast named Disorder. The Disorder Podcast is hosted by NATO Foundation analyst Jason Pack and former British diplomat Alexandra Hall Hall. It examines the increasing chaos of our times, the rise of hybrid warfare, cyber misinformation, transnational crime, corruption, global warming, immigration flows, and anti immigrant sentiment. The Disorder Podcast focuses on our global system via engaging storytelling, discussions with experts and opinion formers, reporting, and solutions and suggestions for what can be done about it all. Find and follow Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. Beginning in 1940, a group of Polish diplomats based in Bern, Switzerland, orchestrated a program of forging passports and identity documents from Latin American countries. These were then smuggled into Nazi-occupied Europe, where they were used to save thousands of Jews from the Holocaust. When the Wadosh Group, as it was called, ended its activities in 1943, it had saved possibly as many as 10,000 people from extermination, making it one of the largest conspiracies on behalf of the survival of the European Jews. Roger Morehouse describes the Wadosh Group and its activities in his new book, The Forgers, the Forgotten Story of the Holocaust's Most Audacious Rescue Operation. His most recent book was Poland, 1939. Roger Morehouse is, among other things, a visiting professor at the College of Europe in Warsaw. Roger Morehouse, welcome to Historically Thinking.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So let's begin with you telling the story of of Heinz Lichtenstein.
1: Mm. Um, Heinz is a... I opened the book with Heinz's story. He he was... um, uh, Dutch Jew, I mean, originally German Jew, went to live in Holland and had been very proactive in actually kind of uh, trying to find various methods by which to escape what he saw as the sort of coming uh, fate of, of himself and his family and his people. Um, and he ends up uh, in Theresienstadt, in the camp at Theresienstadt, exceptionally. Very few of our subject Jews that we talk about in the book actually end, end up in Theresienstadt, but he does with his family and is rounded up for deportation in late in 1944. Um, Of course, they're not told where they're going, but um, we know from the record that the destination for that transport was Auschwitz-Birkenau, and we also know that uh, the vast majority of those on board were gassed on arrival. Um, Heinz escaped that fate um, by brandishing his Paraguayan passport, which he had, as I said, before his arrival in Theresienstadt, he had uh, arranged... Uh, through contacts in Switzerland. Um, and it was faked. It was faked by the by the Wadosh group, as you just described, and had been sent back to him. Um, and he brandished his Paraguayan passport and said something along the lines of, you can't do this to me, I'm a Paraguayan citizen, um, as a last throw of the dice, because, you know, he knew pretty well, he didn't know what the destination was of the transport, but he, he, they knew pretty well by 1944 that it wasn't good and it wasn't going to a good place. Um, so he throws throws the last uh, the roll of the dice, brandishes his passport and is pulled out of the deportation line uh, and is held back effectively, uh, is left in Theresienstadt for the rest of the war with his family um, and is reclassified as what the Germans called an exchange Jew, Austauschjude. Um, and this is the category that they put those... Individuals that had foreign passports and forged foreign passports into and the expectation on the German side was that these were people that could be leveraged or otherwise used for their benefit to to exchange literally for uh, Germans held abroad, so he was reclassified as that along with his family um, and that rather crudely done uh, Paraguayan passport which which was produced in Bern in Switzerland by the Wadosh group. Uh, saved his life and saved the life of his family, and it's a, and it's a sort of perfect introduction uh, to to tell that story because it's a you know very human story.
0: After you begin with that with that story and starting as sort of you know right in the middle of the action, you move backward to the conference of Avion. Yeah. Um, which uh, God, it reminds me uh, it reminds me of the endless conferences on global warming yeah. that we've had for thirty years. I mean, and, and lots of diplomatic conferences in which it's very clear that um none of the diplomats actually want to do anything yeah uh yeah. the the purpose of the conference is not for what the conference is about uh, they will deny that probably uh, under a lie. De- they pass a lie detector test. Yeah, uh, but it's obviously not what the conference is about. So, could you describe the the conference of Avn as a symbol of international ineffectiveness?
1: Yeah, Avn is called actually by by President Roosevelt um, in the summer of 1938, and it's and it's called as an international response to the refugee crisis, which was the result of the. Anschluss with Austria, so the German annexation of Austria in the spring of 1938. And you had this, as a result of that, you had, you know, hundreds of thousands of Austrian Jews are suddenly desperate to leave uh, Nazi-occupied Austria. Um, they, they essentially, that, that provokes this refugee crisis. A lot of them don't have the right paperwork. Um, so this is a, a real problem for the international community in 1938. And as a result, the, the conference is called to supposedly, as you say in inverted commas, deal with the refugee crisis. The problem, again, as you as you so so well put put it, is that the international community has no real intention of actually doing anything about this. They're content just to sort of kick the can down the road to set up some putative form of you know bureaucratic bureaucratic framework within which this. This issue might be addressed in the future. But apart from that, nobody's willing to actually take refugee Jews in 1938. Um, everyone talks a good game and wrings ring, their hands with sympathy, but nobody is willing to actually take any refugee Jews. So the, the Europeans say, well, we're all full, so it's, it's, for the, it's for the rest of the world to take on. And the rest of the world says, well, it's not our problem, it's a European problem. So they basically kick the thing between us, between them, and then at the end of the avian the conference... Uh, again, that analogy that you made is very telling. That the end of the conference, they sort of they, they issue a statement to the world saying that they've dealt with the problem, um, and aren't, and pat themselves on the back and say, "Aren't we wonderful?" Um, and and the, and the world's sort of Jewish activists and Jewish politicians at the time are sort of aghast and say, "Well, what exactly has been done here?" You know, the problem has not been addressed in the slightest. It's just been kicked down the road. And I use that. I think it's quite I think it's quite instructive anyway because I think there's two things that I wanted to illustrate here. The first one is that I think when we talk about the Holocaust and we talk about Holocaust rescue, I think there's an assumption with the benefit of sort of 2020 hindsight, rose-tinted 2020 hindsight. I think we assume, when we look at it from our perspective now in 2023, that, um, you know, the outside world was sort of ready and willing to help uh, and was stymied in that ambition by uh, circumstances, by a lack of knowledge, by logistical difficulties, whatever it might be. And I wanted to make the point, admittedly 1938 is before the Holocaust gets going, but I wanted to make the point that fundamentally the outside world is really not sympathetic at this point. And actually it isn't later on as well, and and that's a theme that runs through the book. Um, The outside world is not sympathetic. If anything, it's it's apathetic. Um, And in the worst examples, it's hostile. To the Jewish question and by extension to the Jews. So I wanted to really make the point that, you know, we, we make that assumption of the benevolence of the outside world during the Holocaust at our peril because it simply isn't there. And I thought Evian's a very good way of introducing the problem and also introducing that particular aspect.
0: Now we're recording this two and a half weeks after the October 7th massacre by Hamas in, uh, in southern Israel. This uh, all of a sudden, uh, as I've been reading the book while that was going on, uh, this has taken on a new. <laughs> Far from being something that's history, all, all of a sudden uh, I, I realize I have to update my categories, mm. uh, and one of the categories I have to date is uh, update is anti-Semitism, mm. uh, and you, uh, you do a very nice job of, of sort of. Uh, we, we could go through a. a, a a series of classifications of bands of anti-Semitism, ranging from don't like don't, don't don't care for that you know hard-dealing Jewish chap, all the way to kill them, mm. um, you know, erase them, erase the virus from the earth, and you know, and free our people, mm. which I guess is you know which is is the uh, is well, it's what we saw well, on October seventh. too. it was saying now. Yeah. Uh, what we're saying now. Um, so uh, it, but as you make clear, there's plenty of anti-Semitism uh, uh, of certainly of the genteel to harder variety mm. that is harbored by the delegates to Evian. Mm. Um, but there's also some other factors at work. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah.
0: At least two.
1: Yeah. Um, you mean the Evian itself or later
0: on? Yeah, well, I mean, for example, um, the, there are re- other there are other reasons why European and uh, and why American countries and I when I say American, I mean throughout the Western Hemisphere, mm. why they resist taking in Jewish refugees. Mm. It's not simply anti-Semitism. God knows that contributes. Mm. But there are other reasons as well. Could you explain a couple of those? I mean, for one thing, as you keep emphasizing, no one knows the Holocaust is yeah. about to happen. Yeah,
1: that's true. And, yeah. And,
0: and so and it's very hard for us to see around that enormous stone in our historical yeah. past.
1: So there, yeah, that's very true. I mean, we we have to bear that in mind. I'm sure there are people you know listening to this and gnashing their teeth, saying, "Well, the Holocaust doesn't get going until 1941, so how can he, you know, be alluding to it in, in 38?" I, I take that point, but I think I still think Evian is hugely instructive. Of um, mm-hmm. you know the attitudes of the Western powers to what we might call the Jewish question uh, in this time, without wanting to sound all Nazi about it, um, but yeah there are the, there are other factors that that play into this i mean the one one that 's mentioned which i hadn 't really thought about before I started doing this this book um, one factor that 's talked about at the time is that effect and can you can see where the logic comes from, even though it sounds kind of perverse in retrospect, is that in a sense, sort of helping um, helping the Jews of Europe uh, to find new lives elsewhere was in, was essentially sort of doing the doing the Nazis' dirty work for them. You know, it's helping the Nazis mm-hmm. to to ethnically cleanse um, Austria and the the other lands that they've annexed. And and you think, okay, I mean, there's there's a twisted logic there, but it is very twisted. Um, and then there's there's other elements which you know, again, I th- I think that. That one is, is, I don't think, is necessarily coloured by anti-Semitism. But there are other arguments made at the time which I think are, in a sense, almost code for anti-Semitism. So, for example, the Latin American countries um, often complained and said, well, we don't want sort of urbanised intellectuals. We need people to work the fields, right? I mean, it's an, and it's an old yeah. trope. You know, you talk about... Like Stalin used to talk about cosmopolitans, and that was often code for rootless, Jews, right? Rootless cosmopolitans. Rootless cosmopolitans. Exactly. Yeah. So it's the same sort of code, I think, that's being used. It's another way of saying we don't really want Jews, frankly. Um, but they used to say, yeah. well, we want agricultural labourers. We don't need urban intellectuals. So, you know, there's other elements as well in this. But I, I think a lot of it... As you, I mean, and it's important that you said, as, as you did just now, that there are... There are sort of concentric circles of anti-Semitism. You know, there are different types nice, of anti-Semitism. Yeah. You have that sort of core, metastasized, vehement, biological anti-Semitism of the Nazis, which is exterminatory, absolutely. Uh, and it sees the Jews solely as, uh, I think as you put it, as a virus to be exterminated. Um, and then it's sort of, you know, even going back to the Middle Ages and beyond, I mean you, you, anti-Semitism in its broadest sense is a universal disease, even in the 1930s yeah. and, and way beyond and it goes back to, you know, there's, there's Christian anti-Semitism, that, you know as, as doctrine had it for a, for centuries, Christian doctrine held that the Jews killed Christ, that was a ground for anti-Semitism going, going back a long way, and in the 1930s incidentally yeah. and particularly in Catholic countries like Poland as well, so that was a, that was an influence, and, and it, that, right. That, I think that, that, that doesn't make it exterminatory anti-Semitism, which might sound like a kind of a, you know, a sign sort of use of weasel words. But there are there are differences in the anti-Semitism.
0: I've been thinking about this for an essay I'm writing on on George Washington's letter to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, um, which is a strange letter about to Jews since it doesn't mention Judaism, Yeah. <laughs> barely mentions Jews. Yeah. But I think that's the point. I think that it, what Washington is saying for who knows why is that the Jews are not a political problem in the New Republic. Mm -hmm. And when going back to the Romans, going back to the Jewish revolt, maybe even before, Jews are always a political problem for some empire or republic. Um, And once you make the Jews a problem in your politics, a problem that you will solve, you're on a very... you end up moving towards exterminatory policy. Yeah, it's a slippery slope. Or least, slope. you yeah. know. Yeah. But once, you, but it, it's the decision. So I think almost now I would almost put then an anti Semitism begins with saying the Jew is a political problem for my community. Yeah. Yeah. I would
1: agree. I would agree.
0: So let's, let's talk about. Um, what happens next? Um, the uh, We won't go into the, the, uh, the many examples of Jews trying to get out and failing to get out of Germany after Kristallnacht. Mm. Um, there's many famous examples. Um, we've talked about um, Freud's on the podcast freud's escape from vienna which it's amazing how hard it was for one of the most eminent you know one of the biggest intellectual celebrities in the world to get out of uh, german-occupied austria um but your story begins as it's a polish story yeah so it really begins so we need you to rehearse a little of the the territory that you've covered in your book polish 1939 yeah with the not just the speed we often emphasize the speed of the german blitzkrieg into poland but the ferocity yeah the really extraordinary ferocity that I, I don't think a western a non-polish audience realize remembers or
1: realizes i think that's very true um i mean poland of course is the first the invasion of poland is the first campaign of the second world war in europe um which i think particularly with the american audience maybe gets forgotten um I think there's still a mentality in the states um, which sort of counts World War II as 41 to 45. Um, December 7th, 1941. Exactly, that's where it began. Exactly. Um, so yeah, Poland is the first campaign, and I, and again, in in even in the in the um, European narrative of the war, where we know it starts in September 1939. I think there's still a, a lack of understanding. The way I always put it is that there's a there's a very clearly an Eastern war and a Western war in Europe. And the Eastern War um, is extremely brutal to an extent that the Western War barely recognizes it as, as the same phenomenon. Um, the opponent, whether it be the Poles or later on the Ukrainians, Belarusians, you know, the, 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 the Soviet citizens after 41, um, the Germans fundamentally view their opponents in the East as being en masse subhuman and, and dispensable, disposable. Um, so there's no requirement to essentially take them prisoner. There's no requirement to treat them well. There's no retri- requirement to treat um, uh, civilian populations well. Massacres are commonplace. Um, it's very interesting that in the sort of in the conventional sort of Anglo-French narrative of the war, you have this event um, which stands out very, very, very strongly, which is the massacre at Oradour. In France, in 1944, where 600 plus French civilians are rounded up and murdered in most bestial circumstances by the SS Das Reich division, and that's sort of seen as a sort of universally um, uh, instructive example of you know the suffering of European peoples in, in World War Two. Well, yeah, it's very well known, but you know, bear in mind that what's ex- what's interesting about Orador is that it's actually exceptional in France. In 1944 and and beyond, because that didn't tend to happen in the Western War. There are some examples of of massacres as well, of POWs and others, but it's an exception rather than the rule. What happened at Orador is the norm in Eastern Europe, in occupied Poland, in occupied Soviet Union, in every, every next village suffered an Orador. But nobody talks about it, you know. It just wasn't part; didn't become part of the narrative. So, yeah, you have this problem that Poland disappears from the map. It's it's swallowed up. It's destroyed by both the Germans and the Soviets. Also, often forgotten, um, operating more or less in concert, you know, as, uh, in the alignment with the uh, Nazi-Soviet Pact of 1939. Um, is it exposed to uh, almost two years of joint occupation between the Germans and the Soviets, divided down the middle? Um, and in that period, and this is the period where w- our narrative starts, um, the Polish government and a lot of the politicians and so on escape via most of them via Romania uh, and come west. They end up in France then after 90, after the fall of france in in London yeah
0: before we get to that, I want to linger a little bit more on the bloodshed oh, okay because uh, because I, I think because I, I realized i, I have a, I wrote a note that you know that in many ways. This seeming outburst of philo-Semitism mm. is really occurring because of what's happening to all Poles. And if you don't understand what's happening to all Poles, then you don't understand why they started saving Jews. Yeah, that's very
1: true. Uh, yeah.
0: Or Polish Jews. Yeah. yeah. So, like for, for example, uh, could you just like the Jagiellonian University? Yeah. Uh, what ha- the faculty, uh, you describe how 172 of them are. Basically, they're taken. Uh, there's going to be a faculty meeting about how things will proceed in the new curriculum. Yeah. But instead, they're taken to Sachsenhausen concentration yeah, camp.
1: Absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, rounded so up, ch- sent to the concentration camps. A lot of them die in the process. Um, uh, it took the Pope, I think, to intervene to actually, you know, get some of them returned, and then returned, you know, back to an occupied Krakow and a very difficult uh, existence. So yeah, I mean, the the interesting thing in the case of Poland is, I think, for uh, again, it's about perceptions. I think the outside world you know being to some extent you know i mean our modern world to some extent sort of half informed as we are um we assume i suppose when we talk about occupy poland that, that you know the holocaust looms large it looms perhaps largest but in those open in that opening phase of the war the primary target of the germans and actually the soviets as well um, is, is, you know, ordinary Poles, is, 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 uh, you yeah. know, Poles in the German case on racial grounds, in the Soviet case on class grounds. Um, well,
0: I, I, I know I met a, a Polish American woman not long ago when I was giving a talk. Her grandfather was deported east to a concentration camp because he ran a sawmill. Yeah. Obviously, he's part of the intelligentsia, of course. And, so and he, he, had, he had he had property, be, you know, know. He
1: was someone. He was someone that was uh, had a standing in society. And, he, he was just.
0: I don't think he owned the right, He just was just a it. manager. Yeah.
1: That was enough. Yeah. <laughs> that was enough. I mean, enough. I've written about it in a previous book. There's there was a, a list of the categories of individuals that, that the Soviets, you know, basically clar- um, qualified you to for a, a one way trip to the Gulag, and uh, and it's, and it's and a the, ridiculously and, exhaustive list. Yeah. And then the and then and, and likewise on the
0: German side of the line, um, you know, I guess I would have said if you asked me when do Einsatzgruppen begin? Oh, it's part of Ukraine, it's part of the invasion. It's, no, it's and, 39. you are know, spending all, yeah. but it's but it's thirty nine. Yeah. Yeah. So could you? Do, I mean, so there's already they're moving, at least. You know, everyone's trying something about the Jews. Yeah. It's long before the vanse Conference. You yeah, know, yeah. And some people are uh, some people are going to kill them all. Yeah. Uh, so could you describe well, some the, of those actions? The
1: directions? interesting thing is that the, the, the Einsatzgruppen go into, you know, these the sort of SS killing squads that, you know, quite the infamous, as you said, from forty one with Operation Barbarossa and, the, and that sort of really deliberate and systematic targeting of Jewish populations in Ukraine and Belarus and in the Baltics as well. But they're there already in 1939. But curiously, their task in '39 is is not necessarily to target Jews. It's primarily to target Poles. Now, if you if you're and Polish prominent individuals, so they, this is the you know what we slightly euphemistically call the decapitation of Polish society. Um, so this right. is t- anyone that could, you know, from, from the German perspective, anyone that could stand in the way of, of the occupation, anyone that could be a rallying point for patriotic poles. So, you know, politicians, doctors, priests. Um, teachers, university professors, university profe- you know, anyone mm-hmm. that has knowledge and, and status in society. Now, in, it, but if they're a Jew, so much the better, if they're I a mean, Jew, it's, so it's much the better. But that's that initially is not the intention. So it's really decapitating mm-hmm. Polish society. And then there's this. So that is going on in, you know, 39, winter of 1940 and, and, and all the way through. Um, and then there's this particular massacre, which i describe in some um, length in the book, which which takes place at a place called Bemishow, which is down in south, what is now southeastern Poland, um, and this was a that I think you know there are instances where in the course of the of the German campaign against against Poland, um, there are. In many cases, you know, tens, even hundreds of of Jews are rounded up with others and executed very often by SS units because they were the most, you know, ideologically um, driven. Um, But down at Pshemishul, this is the first large scale targeted killing of Jews specifically. Uh, and this is in mid September already one thousand nine hundred and thirty nine so you know there, there wasn't there, there wasn 't much of a sort of a break but chemishal is quite is quite telling, and they reckon that about six hundred Jews are rounded up in chemischel and taken out in batches to sort of local cemeteries and essentially machine gunned um, and I, and there 's a couple of eyewitness accounts that I managed to discover of these massacres, um, which allowed me to Describe them, I think, probably as probably as thoroughly as I think anyone has uh, in the historical record. But as I said, it's significant because it does mark a shift. It's not just Jews that are caught up in that, in that wider decapitation program. And it's not just Jews who are caught up in a wider sort of fog of war massacre kind of mentality. This is a de- the first really deliberate targeting of Jews because they were Jews. And it's really a, it's a signpost, a very large signpost of what's coming.
0: Now, let's get back to the setting up of a government in exile. Uh, this is made all the more difficult. By the fishers within Polish politics, uh, because of uh, the establishment of a dictatorship by a friend of historically thinking, Josef Pilsudski. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put the show notes. We did like an hour and a half on Pilsudski, who is the most fascinating European character that no one has ever heard mm-hmm. of. Uh, but Pilsudski, uh, socialist democrat, uh, then also establishes a military dictatorship. Uh, he's a man of he's a man of many contradictions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and many facets. And uh, he, people who had um, been his followers from way back, like Josip S- uh, Sikorsky, mm-hmm. um, uh, fall out with him. Lots of other people fall out with him, including, uh, and they, he also had political opponents, like one of our protagonists for this story, Alexander Wadosh. Uh, and they are none too keen with what he has done. But there are, and there are, so the, the, Polish, po- the Polish political Class to use a terrible term is already fissured yep. prior to this barbaric invasion. Further uh, eliminates people from this class. Yeah. So that's so that's that, So you have to, people have to when they're building this. It's not as if there's an intact uh, political. Uh, class and culture that can be exported to Paris no. and just set up shop and get moving. It's they have to reconcile a lot of bitterness yeah. for the last fifteen years of Polish politics.
1: Yeah, that's very true. And, and um, uh, Pilsudski sort of um, Pils- Pilsudski himself died in 1935. So what was left for the last four years of the Second Republic until the collapse of 1939 is you know the heirs of Pilsudski who were. Let's be frank, they were sort of maintaining the, the edifice and the structure that he built. And I would, I would always describe it, I think, as authoritarian rather than a dictatorship. And I appreciate that's maybe mm-hmm. a small distinction, yeah, but I think. I think it's more alter- authoritarian it- than anything.
0: Um, and more, the most impressive is his followers had fallen out with him already. This is a group of second raters. Let's be yeah, let's be fair. to some extent, yeah, yeah, some extent. And, and, they, and yeah.
1: there's various voices. I and mean, there's a couple that I quote in the um, in the book of, of people being very critical, you know, about people like um, like Ridge Migui, who's who ended up as the the uh, commander in chief um, in in uh, '39. Um, but what's interesting in this is that the 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 collapse or the fall of the second republic in 1939 is um is kind of is the is very i think demonstrably the end of that Pulsudsky regime or the post pulsudsky mm-hmm. regime because what emerges in the in the exile government circles is is primarily a government for various reasons, but primarily it's a government that's, that is dominated by his rivals, by the people like as you mentioned, Sikorsky um, who had been opposed to him. So you, you have that fissure, as you mentioned, and it's a, it's a nice way of describing it, but in a sense the fissure is opened up very widely with the collapse of Poland in thirty nine. and what what, come, what succeeds that regime, the Second Republic in exile, the government in exile, is almost completely a government of Opponents of the Pilsudski regime. So it's all the people who had been on the other side. And that's partly because you know those were those those were the people who um, you know because the other team had failed in a way they were the ones that now were given their head. But it's also because they needed to keep the Western powers on side. They were still you know nominally at least an ally of the Western powers. They had and you know Poland itself had fallen. So you know a little bit of needing to sort of tailor your your image to the outside world as positively as possible, so they could portray themselves as being you know more liberal perhaps than they were more uh, pro-western necessarily than they had been and so on so it, it there's various factors in there but but it is essentially you know the government in exile is effectively a government of of opposition uh, from 39 which is an interesting aspect because it does bring people like wadosh who had been you know really in the political wilderness up until 1939 it brings them back into the fold uh, and he's he becomes quite significant there because he's initially is a minister without portfolio in that government, uh, and then is is removed from that and is sent as an ambassador. They they needed ambassadors. They still had, you know, the government in exile still had uh, politi- um, diplomatic outposts, uh, you know, in in sort of neutral and non-aligned Europe and so on and elsewhere. And at the
0: same and at the same time, <coughs> excuse, sorry, excuse me. They're, at the same time, they're building up the. Um Let's call it the polish home army yeah and then the associate intelligence uh structure which you know becomes certainly in the german zone becomes very sophisticated yeah it does absolutely um, it's it, it's, yeah. it's amazing how 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 effective the uh nkvd the soviet secret service was at, at eliminating it uh one of their oldest a- enemies uh, you know already yeah is, is they they keep the poles eliminated but the gestapo is not efficient, as efficient as the nkvd no nkvd were very a, good a, at
1: wiping out the um, the underground and, and mm. compromising them as well they used to use all the all the tricks in the book to um, to eliminate the underground but the underground it's a very again it's it's a part of the story i think we conventionally don't really know enough about in the in the sort of conventional mm-hmm. um, english-speaking narrative um but it's set up right you know right at the at the end of the september campaign um you know when they know that warsaw is besieged and is soon going to fall um this order goes out to basically you know any units that aren't actively engaged in resisting the germans at that point are to lay down their arms you know hide their uniforms and essentially wait for the call you know you wait for the call for your your superior officer will be back you know and and we're going to get the band back together and in the meantime um you know Collect weapons um, you know uh, uh, look for information, secure our intelligence and the rest of it, uh, and wait for the call and and the and what emerges out of all of that by about well certainly by by forty one i mean it's not really not really sort of. Brought together in one unit until forty-two, really. But there's all sorts of disparate units within the uh, within the underground. But it, it is the most thoroughgoing, the largest, the most populous resistance movement in Europe, and it answers directly to the government in exile. So there, there's there's mm-hmm. that. Le- it's an expression of the legal continuity of the Polish state, crucially. So mm-hmm. they are an arm of the Polish state. So this is why this connection is so important. And people like Wadosh who ends up in Switzerland in 1940, and there are other diplomatic outposts of the Poles, for example, in, in Sweden or in Turkey, part of the rationale for that, for having, you know, competent, reliable people in those posts, was that you're maintaining that conduit west from the home army in occupied Poland, that they could smuggle material out, say, to Switzerland or to, or to uh, Istanbul or to, uh, into Turkey... And then get it west to to London. So it was part of that whole network. So this again is a is a sort of crucial strand of the narrative is to understand that connection between the government and exile uh, and the and the underground in Poland.
0: So briefly about Alexander Wadosz, mm. you describe him as portly, multilingual, and with a somewhat relaxed attitude to officialdom, <laughs> yeah. which you believe is part of his success. So could you yeah, describe a little um, bit him a little bit?
1: It's interesting. He 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 uh, is already you know he's quite sort of portly. I think he's just coming. Up, I think he's just coming up to fifty at the time. i can have to remember exactly when he was born, um, but he's around around fifty. He's sort of he's quite grey haired. He has a, uh, a a sort of goatee beard, and and all of the photos of him that we have had this you know quite sort of smiling, avuncular kind of character seems to come through. And a lot of the there's a lovely account by the um he's actually the radio officer he's a, a sort of a, a, a junior officer at the at the Polish embassy in bern um who d- describes um, wadosh in contrast to the to his predecessor the, the previous ambassador and he says the previous ambassador was constantly kind of buzzing around was hyperactive was you know always on his feet and then he says wadosh in comparison is this sort of portly you know laid-back character who never gets into the office before 11 spends most of the day horizontal in a sort of cloud of cigar smoke so he was he was you know you know uh, a polar opposite from his predecessor Um, but interestingly, in Wadosh's case, in his own history, I mean, two elements stand out. One of which is that, you know, he, he grew up as a young man in the Austrian partition of Poland. So Poland, up until 1918, of course, is partitioned between essentially Russia, Austria and, and Germany, had been for 123 years, since 1795. Um, and he grew up in the Austrian partition, which was the most liberal of the three partitions. But even then, he fell foul of the Austrian authorities and was uh, sentenced to internal exile for Polish uh, agitation. Um And he was sent to the Tyrol in Austria uh, and promptly escaped from the Tyrol across into uh, Switzerland with, you know, you guessed it, a forged passport. So even with his own (laughs) within his own history, his own life history, he had, you know, first hand experience of the benefits of forging documents. Um, And then the other element is, you know, in his sort of in his escape, if you like, his Exit out of um, what becomes occupied Poland in thirty nine. He was helped along that route. They, they, you know, there is this almost like an enormous sort of camel train of, of, of cars and carts and horses and people on foot, all going down to the to the southeast corner to get out via Romania. Um, as the as the as the channel they're going through was narrowing between the Germans and the Soviets, but he was one of those and was helped along the way by you know ordinary Jewish civilians who who let him into their homes. Put him up for, for the night and fed him and so on and and he was very touched by that uh, and and remembered it and he remembers there's, there's an unpublished memoir of his which is languishing in the archives um, and he uh, uh, you know mentions that that uh, that event and and talks about how it uh, how it sort of to some extent that's not necessarily changed his attitude to the Jews but certainly um, helped to colour it you know in a much more positive light. So by the time he's put into post in 1939, I mean, he's already... He, I mean, he's, center, he's sort of centre-left in his politics anyway, um, which is part of the reason for sort of falling out with Pilsudski. Um, but again, he's very, as I said, that relaxed attitude to official documents, I think, is, is, is important. To be fair, I don't think that's necessarily peculiar to him. I think I make the point in the book that, you know, for that generation that had grown up in... Essentially, foreign occupation of your country—it um, mm. was quite normal for for people to have a sort of a double life, in a way, that you had an outside, you know, an outside sort of fealty, an outside. Um, you know you do what was necessary you have all the right paperwork and you do the necessary things to, to uh, you know adhere to what's expected and then you have a secret life which is that you, maybe you have you know friends who are writing you know uh, Polish patriotic poetry or discussing you know uh, clandestine newspapers or even producing clandestine newspapers whatever it might be so there is this element um, the Poles call it conspiracja this element of, of conspiracy which was a part of everybody's lives to some extent uh, hmm. And and Wadosh's own experience is is very is a very clear example of that. So it's quite a widespread thing in Poles of that generation. It's not just, yeah. it's not just a sort of a folk memory from 100 years ago. No. It was personal experience.
0: Reading uh, the biography of Pilsudski that we discussed, and if you go back and listen to this conversation, you can hear this. You can hear how the Pilsudski family... When they read their secret Polish stuff, they're in, they're in near Vilna, they're in, 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 Lithuania, they're in the Russian zone of occupied mm. Poland. Um, he's really learning how to be a clandestine political figure from the time he's three or four. Yeah. He's learning trade, he's learning tradecraft, you know, where to conceal things, uh, when not to talk about them, all the rest of that stuff. Yeah. And you can imagine this conspiracy, this, this extends throughout Polish society. They're perfectly equipped to resist a foreign occupation. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And, that, and that's, one of the, that's one of the great sort of um, seedbeds of, you know, how, how the underground becomes as effective as it is. Because, as I said, for, the, for a lot of those people involved, it was first-hand experience that they were drawing on. So in the, in,
0: in the introduction, I said the Wadosh group began in 1940. What does it mean? I mean, he arrives in 1939. How does it begin in 1940?
1: What's it start to do? Um, it's a good question. He actually arrives in the spring of 1940, Wadosh, um, okay. and begins to... Uh, some of the others that are involved are there from the end of 1939. Um, it, I think if you imagine the sort of the Hollywood version of this, should any such thing ever come to pass, I think you'd, you'd have to have a scene where, you know, the, six, the sort of key six individuals of the Wadosh group get together in a smoke-filled room and say, right, chaps, you know, the Holocaust is ongoing, Um, you know, what are we going to do about it, Um, and hatch a plan. Um, Life is, unfortunately, uh, not as neat as that, uh, and history is not as neat as that. So it's very organic what they actually end up doing. Um, So all of the individuals are sort of in place, really, by the end of 1940. Um, Bear in mind, of course, that the Holocaust proper is not yet underway, The end of 1940, it really gets underway properly, as in, I would say, you know, systematic, organized, uh, targeted killing of Jews really is, you know, the the back end of 1941 after Operation Barbarossa. Um, So how we say that it starts in 1940 is that actually it starts with people, uh, Polish Jews, wanting to escape from the Soviet zone of occupation. Of Poland and looking for any way in which that can be achieved. Uh, And this is where I do a section on this um, Japanese uh, diplomat. His name was Kiyune Sugihara, who was in Kaunas in Lithuania. who
0: I've read about, people have, have discussed him yeah. as a sort of a, you know, righteous among the Gentiles. Absolutely, um, And it, I, I think part of the, the box office attraction is here is a member of an Axis power, a diplomat of an Axis power, uh, who actually is saving Jews. Yeah. But you, you're pointing out Sugihara, uh, this is not something I realized, his connection to the Polish underground the, the government
1: yeah he had um, two of his sort of uh, staff members were polish underground or polish intelligence officers um, he was very and, and that was a quid pro quo so they used to work for him and in return he allowed them to use sort of diplomatic bags and that sort of thing so there's a very much a quid pro quo sort of symbiotic relationship going on there huh. um, and he was he was essentially sent to to his post um, yeah they, you know japan is an axis power but there's not much in the way of and say there's, there's not a very close relationship necessarily, there's not much trust going on. So he was sent to, to Kaunas to, he was an intelligence officer, he was sent to kind of spy, you know, both on the Soviets and on the Germans and see what's going on. Um, that was his task. And then he finds himself basically inundated with um, mainly Polish Jews, but also Lithuanian Jews who are basically saying, we can't, we can't be here. We can't be in this, you know, what's becoming fast becoming the Soviet Union. So, that, you know, Lithuania is, is in the process of being assimilated and occupied by the Soviets in the summer of 1940. Um, the eastern zone of Poland has already been effectively assimilated into the Soviet Union by that stage. So there's large numbers of Jews there who are saying, we can't be here. This is, you know, this is dreadful. We can't be in the Soviet Union. Help us to get out. And he hatches this scheme whereby he, you know it gives them the necessary paperwork that they can theoretically at least apply for a a ticket on the trans-siberian railway and get right the way across the soviet union out the other side across japan and out Um, which was a bureaucratic nightmare because that's how the soviets kind of you know one of the key elements of 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 of, uh, the soviet system was was to create these bureaucratic kind of kafka-esque nightmares um but that enabled them to do it now the reason that that this ties into the Wadosh story is that the Wadosh group in, as as is developing in Bern is aware of this through these sort of Polish intelligence connections, so when they 're asked when they have an, a couple of individuals that contact them directly and say, "You must help us, we need to get out one of whom is the, is the uh, name, by the name of Leo Weingort, whose brother was teaching in, a, in a, uh, a yeshiva, a Jewish school in in Lausanne in, in uh, Switzerland. So this was, the, this was the sort of key. Um, he writes to his brother and says, you have to get me out of here. You know, I can't, I can't bear being in the Soviet Union and so on. Um, and he approaches the the Polish embassy and says, what can you do? He said, well, we've heard this story about people going, you know, via the Trans-Siberian Railway and getting out via uh, Japan. We don't know if it works, but we've heard that, that people are trying to do it. Um So, of course, your Polish, your old Polish documents are by this time no use because they've been rendered defunct by the Soviet occupation. So what are you going to do? You're going to you, you can't provide them with a new Polish passport. That's worthless. So then the, the next thing is, who can we prevail upon to provide us with per- false paperwork? And there's this uh, a local uh, um, honorary consul in Bern, a Swiss Uh, by the name of Rudolf Hooghly, who was the uh, Honorary Consul of Paraguay. And they they knew that he was biddable. They knew he was bribeable. And he was the guy that they approached and said, you know, provide us with some blank Paraguayan passports. And that was the first one.
0: And so that's it. Do you... um I, I, I was wondering this reading this is, is at some point does the foreign ministry of Paraguay and, and by the way given the, the subsequent the dictator of, of Paraguay Alfredo Stroessner it's uh, it's delightful that there was Paraguayan passports yeah. does the Paraguayan foreign ministry or, or passport control officers eventually say hey where the hell did all these Paraguayans come from yeah in Central Europe I mean yeah they
1: were they, they, they were not very there's the sort of second half of the book to some extent is is the di- diplomatic fallout from all of this from all the, all of this um, uh, illegal production of, of Paraguayan and other parts about 70% of what they produce is Paraguayan and then the rest is others you know Honduras and various other El Salvador and other places um, but yeah the, the, the Paraguayans really weren't very happy um, when they discovered that this was going on and that became, that became part of a really sort of fundamental problem which was that, as I said before, in the case of Heinz Lichtenstein, what the Germans did was to pull these people that held these passports out of the deportation line to Auschwitz and take them to the ordinary concentration camps. And in most cases, they took them to Belsen, which is a bloody awful concentration camp, right? It really has a huge death toll for a regular concentration camp where they're not doing active killing. Um, so it's a really bad place to be. But that's where they kept the exchange dues. And they kept them in many cases. You know, it could be two years you could be stuck in Belsen. And all the time, um, the, the, the outside world the latin americans the american state department are wrangling about you know well should we recognize these forged passports or not because you know the state department incidentally was adamant and saying this is not a good idea you know this is this is rewarding illegal activity um so why would but we but do is that it, but
0: is it is it illegal activity I mean we, we, you're referring to them as forged passports, but
1: are they really forged they're, if the consul and Baron no, they're, they're is, illegally is issued them? they're illegally issued technically okay. technically so they 're not forged yeah. I think if Wadosh himself had been kind of knocking them up in the back room, then they, you could say they were yeah. forged, but they were illegally issued because because the legal requirements you know to to, to get a passport were were ba- basically being waived, they were just producing them okay. on request F- fair enough yeah. Um, we, we should, speaking of bureaucratic nightmares,
0: yeah. um, probably the weirdest part of this is the German insanity for classification and legalism, yeah. which makes this work. Yes. So you just people that you, people are going, are scratching their heads listening to this and thinking, you know, they get this Paraguayan passport and then they don't like, they say, Oh, oh, uh, you know, Honda Hoch. We can You know, that's we. Uh, we're not going to touch you, Kamarad, You know, off to Belsen with you. Yeah. But this is what they did. It is because I mean, this is sort of like a an ordinary insanity of German life, yeah. and which was ex- take, taken to truly epic, yeah.
1: lengths during the Nazi regime. Yeah, there are two, there are two points here, Al, which are which are interesting. The first one is I make the point in the book that one of the crucial. Legal preconditions for the Holocaust was that the Germans made their would be victims into non people. Right. And that meant that Mm -hmm. you as a Pole, as a Polish Jew, for example, all of your, you know, your your documents, your passport, if you had one, all of that was defunct with the fall of the Polish state. So all that they then issued were these sort of Ken Carter, which was an identity card produced by the German authorities, which, you know, could be easily revoked and thrown in the bin. Didn't matter. And the same thing for, you know, for German Jews, for Reich Jews, The, the moment that you that you crossed the German border. When you were deported, um, there was a paragraph of the law that was in force at the time, which basically said you forfeited all of your rights as a your remaining rights as a citizen so there was this really and this is something I think gets overlooked because we imagine the Holocaust in retrospect almost as this sort of frenzy of killing but it's yes, it is, but it's it 's preceded by a very thought out and calculated um, uh, Depersonalization of the individual. So you are, you are, you become a non-person, right? This is the crucial thing. So this is where you can see that if you then present those people who are then in the ghettos or in the camps or whatever, if you present them with a passport, right? And very often it was just a facsimile of a passport, but that's all that got sent to them. But if you present them with that, it kind of puts a stick in the wheel of the, of this mechanism of the Holocaust because the Germans suddenly go, oh, crikey, okay, so you're not non-people after all, you're actually Paraguayans, right? So, okay, so we can't do what we wanted to do with you. And then they sort of create almost a virtue out of that and say, well, what are we going to do with them? Well, okay, we'll put them in a camp and we'll, and we'll uh, exchange them for Germans abroad, right? So, it does- so this is
0: the exchange, so, so the exchange Jews, this is, and you point out that if, if you watch the, uh, the even the, the, the films of the Vance Conference have been done, uh, the... Uh, somewhat oddly named Martin Luther of yeah. the German Foreign Office. He he is uh, all in a sweat about preserving the exchange Jew category and using them. Yeah. And, 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 and I I've watched that and not really understood what he was talking yeah, about. Yeah, that was it. But this is yeah. this this is it. This is that you want to have Jews that you can exchange for the, I guess tens of thousands of Germans who were caught on the other side of the border yeah. uh, in. You know, September first or yeah. December uh,
1: 1939 uh, f- yeah, or December ninth nineteen forty one. Exactly right. If you're in the and you in A- and you have to bear in mind here, right? this is this might be sort of teaching everyone to suck eggs, but you know, the, the nazi the Nazi regime is is all about blood, right? It's it's about redeeming good blood, i.e., getting Germans mm-hmm. back, and this is why they encourage right. you know good Aryan women to reproduce, and they have these SS bordellos and all that sort of thing good blood, and then eliminating, as they put it, bad blood, which is Jewish blood, Slavic blood, and so on. So in this way, they're, they're getting rid of, out of Europe, bad blood, right. i.e. foreign Jews, and they're getting back and good rede- blood, redeeming good blood. Redeem- that's, redeeming how they, good that's how blood. they viewed yeah, it. Right? So in that's, when you describe yeah, yeah. it like that, perhaps it makes a bit more sense, but that's exactly what it was.
0: Yeah. So we don't, we're reaching the end of our time, so we don't have to, we don't have a, a we're not going to get into more of the intricacies. You should you should read the book for that. But uh, briefly, uh, how did the Wadosh group end in forty three? And then what happened to those people in the mm. the remaining two years of the Holocaust? the The, the group ends in forty three, just as the full industrialization of of killing yeah. is 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 being finally made manifest in concrete and and, and crematorium. Yeah.
1: Um, so the end of the Waddish group, 343, I mean, they're, they're sort of being, they're being investigated increasingly. They're being clamped down on by the Swiss police, um, largely at the behest of the, of the Germans, incidentally, the behest of the, of the uh, Gestapo. Um, the germans had sent a couple of um agents to try and infiltrate the group um through 1943 unsuccessfully so they then went you know by using the uh swiss police as their proxies they kind of try and shut it down so they try to intimidate the members themselves they're arrested they go through um prosecutions which collapse um so that doesn't work they end up going for the honorary consuls themselves so someone like hooghly then has his you know because he's been Breaking the law, effectively, he has his authority as an honorary consul removed, and that's the way they they stop the Wadash group from issuing these passports. So by the end of forty three, they they're not issuing any more at all. They they can't do it. and do we have any number for how many of these passports they had sent across?
0: I mean, and, and also how did they send them? Yeah. Uh, that's, I guess through diplomatic bags of other countries. Not or, necessarily. Or it's, so it's there, there's but... a
1: great, I mean, another one of these aspects, the Polish underground that's remarkable is, is this network of couriers that they had, you know, coming west okay. and going back again. And, you know, cause you, the, the underground, as I described, had to communicate with, with the government in exile. So they did that to a large extent using couriers. So, um, you know, that, that, that could be harnessed as well for for smuggling this this stuff in into occupied poland but very often they use the post which sounds completely counterintuitive <laughs> um but the post still functioned i mean bizarrely if you were in the warsaw ghetto for example um you could write post out and you could receive post back now the problem was you know it, it would be censored which meant that the, the letters out very often were in code which is a, an interesting part of the book uh, how they how they would sort of write the code to say what they wanted and and how you know how's my passport application going and so on so it would be censored and then very often posts coming back in particularly parcels used to get sort of rifled through by the gestapo and anything of value would be stolen so you know it wasn't a perfect system but essentially they used the post um so it answers that question um but no the uh so the the that by their own estimation, um, in January nineteen forty four, so after the, the after the system has broken down, um, there's a, an estimate that they'd produced papers for ten thousand individuals. Now, this is not necessarily ten thousand passports because at the time, um, this, an average passport would be you know for a family, so it would be for a you know husband and wife perhaps and maybe a couple of children. So the the average is I think two point four individuals per per passport so um, we, can, we can do the maths from that probably about 4,000 passports but covering something like 10,000 individuals and that was their estimate at the time so they reckoned that there were 10,000 recipients of their passports who were being held in places like Bergen-Belsen in January 1944 um, unfortunately we know that only a fraction of them actually survived the war so that's the question that you, you mentioned what happens to them in the next mm-hmm. 18 months at least uh, and what happens is that they are left in places like Belson in dreadful conditions, which deteriorate, you know, very, very rapidly from the end of forty-four onwards. You know, the vast majority of deaths in Belson and the, the, the death toll of Belson is about fifty-five thousand come in the last three months, and that's all to do with sort of typhus and and uh, diphtheria e- epidemics and that sort of thing. The place just collapses, um, and so they're they're left in places like that to basically survive. All the while, as I mentioned before, the outside world is wrangling over, you know, should we recognize these passports or not? Um, and this is where it becomes crucial because the Germans are kind of, you know, waiting for word on this and saying, well, if you don't recognize the passports, then these people are just Jews and you know what happens to them. Um, if you recognize them as Paraguayans or as foreign Jews, then that's fine. You know, we'll keep them in case there can be an exchange. But the outside world is, you know, the Paraguayans. As I said, are not very keen. They they think this is an, an insult to their to their uh, integrity as a nation, as as other Par- uh, Latin American countries say, broadly the same thing. Um, so they're not very keen, and the and the State Department is in their ear saying, "Well, this is really not a good idea to recognise these passports." Um, uh, as I said, you know, this is rewarding illegal activity. So why would you do that? And they were very worried about espionage. They 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 misunderstood what the what the system was about and they thought that you know if they okayed it then you would have thousands of jews leaving occupied europe uh, and going to places like paraguay and america and everywhere else and would then uh you know be a a sort of trojan horse for for axis uh espionage so that's something that they obsessed about not really understanding that the point was you know they would stay in europe you'd never get thousands of people the intention was never to send people to paraguay it was just a, a way of getting them out of the mechanism of the holocaust so the end result basically is the germans are sort of you know twiddling their thumbs waiting for word whether these passports are going to be recognized and honored or not and when initially word comes that they won't be then they start shipping people to auschwitz and to their deaths so it's, it's, it's absolutely tragic kind of, uh, you know, bureaucratic mess at the end where, you know, you have the Polish government in exile with all of its um, diplomatic weight that it can muster is basically arguing for some form of public recognition of these passports and others that really should have known better, like the State Department, saying, oh, you don't want to do that, that's not a good idea. And all the time the people are holding those passports us are being shipped off and murdered in in batches. So it's a really quite tragic um, end to to what had I th- up to that point had been a really uh, I think really quite heroic and uplifting story. The end of it, unfortunately, is is rather rather the opposite.
0: Well, I, just before we. Um conclude, I did want to ask you, how how did you come across this? Was this going to be in um, a previous book, and sort of just, it it was too big to put in the previous book? Um, And how do you do research on an organization whose primary... Code was that of secrecy. Yeah, I'm always curious that with yeah. people researching an esp- espionage topic, um, we historians love documents. Yeah. But these people believe in burning documents. Yeah, that's, and that's shredding very files.
1: true. Now it came to me um, at the end of must have been 2018 um, with an email from a friend of mine who said, you know, this story was was then sort of breaking. It had broken in the swiss press and in the um polish press where um you know it's just been sort of discovered in the archives that there were documents relating to to wadosh and the group and so on um and you know he, he sent me this email saying this is bubbling under you might want to you know look at it and so on and I, I looked at the basics of the story i thought this is really good um you know it's a new take on on the holocaust anyway i mean it's it's pretty rare it's kind of exciting thing for historians to find find a genuinely new story Um, so that was exciting, it was kind of uplifting um, in that it was a positive story from, from the resolutely grim narrative of the Holocaust which we all know, so that appealed to me um, so I thought, you know, it was, a, it was a good thing for me to take on. So I started, I started researching. I got in touch with the people who had done a lot of the research as well uh, and were doing the research at the time. So I shamelessly piggybacked on, on what they'd done in terms of archival research. Uh, research. And you're right that you know, it, it kind of researching, um, uh, you know, clandestine operations like this is a tough thing. And you have to sort of piece together a lot of it from the existing references on the fringes you know like you know there's a lot of um polish diplomatic correspondence of the time actually obliquely refers to what they're doing for example so there there was enough and if you look at the book and if you look at the the reference base of it um you can see that there's quite a lot of archival material there that that sort of backs all of this up and also personal you know personal testimony um of of those that that uh, were involved um but you're right that up to a point, and one of, one of my slight regrets with the book is that, uh, you know, with the exception of Wadosh, some of the other members of the group are a bit, are a bit two-dimensional, because we just don't know. We don't know, you know, um, Stefan Renevich, for example, another one of, you know, uh, Wadosh's deputy, we just don't know what he was like, you know, the record is not there. There's no picture. Uh, available as far as I can tell, of Rudolf Hoogly of the Honorary Consul who actually supplied the passports. Um, we haven't managed to find a picture of him, which is you know frustrating in the extreme. But this is the nature, as you say, this is the nature of the beast when when um, you know trying to trying to recreate the world from you know uh, uh, eighty years ago, uh, which was meant to be re- to remain secret in perpetuity.
0: My guest today has been Roger Morehouse. He's the author most recently of The Forgers, the forgotten story of the Holocaust's most audacious rescue operation. Roger, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. My great pleasure. Thank you. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present.